The significance of a moment in time cannot be overstated. Each and every one of us has one of those points in time that stand out among the others. It could be that moment your bride walked into the auditorium and the first notes rang of the wedding march. Maybe for some of you, it might be that moment, as Aaron mentioned the other week, when you held that newborn baby in your arms for the very first time. Maybe it was the instance when you finally walked across the stage to receive that diploma. Or perhaps it was that call you received in the middle of the night, informing you that your loved one was now gone from this earth. Whatever the moment is, even now as I speak, those memories are flooding back up to your minds from the recesses of your hearts. Those moments are hard to put into words, aren't they? How do you explain the the joy? How do you explain the sorrow, the exuberance, the emptiness that you feel? We find it hard in the aftermath of those moments to fully explain what it means to us. The reality is, while we may start off in our explanation with words like, you know what I mean, the truth is they they really don't know. For each of us, by God's miraculous design, are created with varying emotions and feelings. And so you don't know what it meant for me to hold within my arms my twin girls that morning of May 17th, 2011, after five years of desperately pleading with God to give us just a child. I can try to explain it, but I won't do it justice. To be honest, I don't know what it meant for you when the casket closed and you saw the face of your loved one for the last time here on earth. I know what it meant to me and my experience of loss, but that's not the same for you. This morning, as we quietly step into this garden here on the outskirts of Jerusalem, our tendency might be to view what is taking place here through the lenses we, unfortunately, far too often read our Bible with. That is, those self-centered lenses that usually leave us asking the question, what does this mean to me? You see, if you're at all like me, You're susceptible to reading God's Word as if you are at the center of this book. And in doing so, you and I actually displace the one whom these pages are all about. And so sorry to burst your bubble, but it's not you. It's Him. You see, we aren't the main characters of the story. As much as the culture today wants to tell us that we are the center, we are the main characters, the truth is... The main character here is far more captivating. And so we carefully step over the flowers and duck underneath the branches here in the Garden of Gethsemane in the blackness of the night. And as we do so, I want to help us push against this tendency to place ourselves at the center of this somber and sacred scene by not letting us ask what it means to us, but rather what it meant to him. What it meant to him. But the truth is, it's here in this starlit garden that we get a glimpse into what it meant to Jesus. In fact, I find 
The words from an old hymn particularly relevant this morning as we fix our gaze on the solemn scene. The hymn writer writes, Oh, help me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Help me to take it in. What it meant to him. Oh, may this be our prayer this morning as we tune our ears and, and lean forward to listen intently to these words of despair from the lips of our Savior. The truth is this scene is rather surprising in light of all we've read and learned about Jesus in the previous pages of Mark's gospel. In fact, Mark's pace even alerts us to a change here. For his pace has been quick throughout the entire gospel, but then it purposefully slows down and draws us in to the significance of this moment. What we see here is a moment like none other. The Jesus we are acquainted with is one who is authoritative, assured, and fearless. He's called fishermen to follow him. He's commanded demons to flee. He's fed the thousands and walked across the sea. All we've seen of Jesus so far throughout the Gospel of Mark has been a surprising strength, unlike any other human strength. But now, now in this, this garden, and as the preceding events unfold in the drama of the Passion Week, we observe something different from Jesus. Weakness rather than strength. It's a moment when our world stops turning, writes Pastor C.J. Mahaney in his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, which is such a helpful resource. It's so shaping in even one of the specific chapters in my understanding of this, this passage this morning, and I would encourage you to read it. It's a moment when our world stops turning, he says, a change so abrupt, so pronounced that it shocks our very soul. Christ here now no longer looks like the fearless leader these disciples have been following for almost three years. No, he looks scared. Could it be? He looks unsettled. He looks frail. But why? I mean, why the change of demeanor in Jesus here? Why the sorrow? Why? I mean, was, was Christ unprepared for this? Didn't we just hear him with his disciples in that upper room tell us that one of them would betray him? And hasn't he already explained to these disciples at least three times throughout the Gospel of Mark that he would be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. I mean, those are Christ's very words. So he, he knew this was coming. So why in this moment is he, as Mark records, greatly distressed and troubled? Well, friends, what I believe we'll see here in this passage this morning is the jarring reality that our sin bears a staggering weight upon our Savior. Our sin 
bears a staggering weight upon our Savior. Our sin and the full and furious righteous wrath of God aimed solely at our sin is what brings Christ in this very moment to stagger to his knees. Oh, that's why we need divine assistance to take it in, to absorb deeply what bearing away our sin meant to Jesus, the Holy One, so that we might feel the weight of what it meant to him. And so as we fix our eyes on Jesus here in this sacred moment, we detect three shocking realities. The first being that the shepherd will be stricken. We see this in verses 26 through 31 as the Passover meal is now concluded and now it's been transformed by Christ into a meal of his remembrance. Jesus and his disciples, Mark tells us, sing a hymn and they move out of this upper room and make their way across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. I imagine you could have cut the air with a knife in this moment. Jesus has just radically altered a meal that the Jewish people had been celebrating for years upon years. And while doing so, he makes it clear he knows of this plot that one of them is carrying out to betray him. You can imagine the suspicion Maybe even the whispering taking place between the disciples. And then Jesus stops. And his words only add to the tension in the moment. He says, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The, the whispers are immediately silenced now. The suspicion about who would be the betrayer now, now turns to self-protection. All? The disciples realized Christ has just pointed out to each of them, declared that each of them will leave him. Peter, always one to speak and then insert his foot into his mouth, delivers once again on this and declares, even though they all fall away, I will not. Oh, Peter, he's just like us, isn't he? Self-protection and self-promotion at its finest. Everyone else will fail, but, but not me. I'm, I'm different. See, I'm, I'm better. I'm, I'm stronger than these weaklings. But did you notice what just happened here? Take a look at it again. In this moment, when Christ once again foretells of his impending death, the disciples, Peter, even you and I, turn the lens from its focus on the main character back to ourselves, from Christ to me. You see, Mark's point here is not to show us how strong we are or even how weak we are, but to show us Christ, true strength becoming weakness in our place. I will strike the shepherd. The disciples would have known the reference Jesus was making here to Zechariah's prophecy 
recorded for us in Zechariah 13.7. It reads, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. They would have known this reference, but in their self-focus, they totally missed the point. Here, Jesus is revealing that this prophecy would soon be fulfilled in his impending death, for he is the good shepherd who knows his own and his own know him, John tells us. He is the one who makes us lie down in green pastures, leads us beside still waters, and restores our souls. Jesus is the one who leads us in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Oh, we can fear no evil because he is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. Even so, he will be stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. We, like sheep, having gone astray, turning every one of us to our own ways. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, this is a shocking reality in this moment. The prophecy will be fulfilled. The shepherd will be stricken. And Jesus knew this would be. You see, this is what it meant for him. As the narrative continues, Mark tells us they came to a place called Gethsemane, a a garden just east of Jerusalem. And there we encounter another shocking reality. Not only the shepherd will be stricken, but the son staggers in sorrow. It's at this very moment that takes place in a garden that we cannot overlook this fact that it happens in a garden. For you may remember in this one grand story we call Scripture that it started in a garden, didn't it? A garden where God first placed his image bearers to reflect his goodness and to cultivate his good creation, but also a garden in which his image bearers rebelled against his goodness, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. A lie from the serpent, the devil, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And in that garden, sin was conceived and has ever since given birth to pain, shame, and destruction. Destruction of God's goodness and his creation. And so it is in this garden that Jesus will come face to face with the wrath of God revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Well, it's no wonder then that from his first steps into this garden that Mark records, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Another translation reads, he began to be gripped by a shuddering terror and to be in anguish. Other translations use words such as horror, deep alarm, and dismay. And once again, I would imagine the disciples whispering to themselves, wondering What was troubling Jesus? What's troubling our teacher? CJ once again notes, suddenly we encounter a Savior we're unfamiliar with. What we observe is foreign and even frightening. This is a consuming, crushing agony for him, utterly unlike anything we've previously observed. 
Oh, it's true we've seen Jesus tearful and even disquieted at the tomb there in Bethany after his friend Lazarus died. There he loudly groaned and at the tomb he openly wept, but that was far different from the sheer torment we see overtaking him now. What is happening here in this moment? Well, Jesus speaks. Only up to this point have we observed his distress. Now his words draw us in to understanding his heart. He says in verse 34, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Oh, this is no exaggeration. Jesus means it. The sorrow his soul has at this moment is so powerful and pronounced that he actually draws near to dying in his human experience. Even now, several hours before the coming torture of the cross, Luke tells us that even in this moment he is sweating like drops of blood. What happens next in this scene proves that he's not overstating his anguish. He staggers to the ground. You see, Jesus in this moment can no longer stand underneath the weight. As we step closer under the shadow of the trees, there he is, the creator of the universe, lying prostrate on the ground. And you can hear him through his groans, his sobs, his utter desperation burst forth in words that again startle us in this moment. Weakness, not strength. As he cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. If you listen again, you can, make him, you can hear him make this plea again. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And then again, remove this cup from me. Three times Jesus asked the Father for an alternative. Three times he pleads with the Father for any other way. Any way possible. Three cries of agony and distress. And how are they met? With silence. Remove this cup from me. The anguish is on his face. You can hear it in his voice. And yet, all he hears is silence. One commentator notes, Jesus entered the garden to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. You see, rather than the loving, gracious hand of the Father extended to him in this moment to comfort him, he finds hell utter separation from God thrust into his face as he looks into the cup. In this moment, this cup consumes his thoughts. But what's so terrible about this cup? What, what's so terrible about this cup that makes him 
stumble and stagger to the ground. Well, again, if we knew scriptures like Christ knew, scriptures that no doubt are flooding his mind in this hour, we could not escape the reference that he is making to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 51 where we read, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Who have drunk the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. You see, what Christ is staring into in this moment is this cup. The cup extended from God's hand to Christ is this cup of his wrath. And for those who drink it, it's the cup of staggering. And so Christ grasps this cup. He looks into this cup, even beginning to sip from the cup, and he staggers. This cup, writes another author, contains the full vehemence and fierceness of God's holy wrath poured against all sin. You see, friends, in this moment, as he stares into this cup and asks for another way for this cup to be dealt with, that cup is your cup. That cup is my cup. We were to drink this cup. The Old Testament's imagery is vivid about this cup. The psalmist writes, Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. In a small way, this is a cup like some volcanic firestorm, like all the fury of Mount St. Helens eruption concentrated in a coffee mug. The prophet Jeremiah declares, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed. Oh, it's no wonder that Jesus stumbles and staggers to the ground here. In the crucible of human weakness, he comes face to face with the abhorrent reality of bearing our Sin and becoming the object of God's full and furious wrath. See, this is a shocking reality in this moment. The sun staggering in sorrow, but yet resilient to finish his mission. The sun staggering when he hears silence from the Father but yet resilient to finish. For let me assure you this morning, friends, if there were another way, if any alternative existed, the Father most surely would have provided it for his Son. But you may ask, why? Why no alternative? Why no other way? Well, friends, let me ask you to hear this verse as if it was for the very first time. For God so loved the world that in this moment he would be silent 
to his son's appeals for an alternative. He so loved the world that he would give his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, friend, in this moment, in the beginning of our Savior's darkest hour, do you recognize what it meant to him to bear your sin? Do you hear the Savior's love for you? If you haven't recognized the Savior's love, listen to Christ's response here. His response to the silence from heaven is, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he repeats it again and again to the Father. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He's saying, in essence, Father, I willingly drink this cup by your command. I'll drink it all. And friends, Jesus didn't let this cup pass. This shows the necessity of the cross It shows that we are only saved by Jesus drinking this cup. God would not save by just sweeping sins under a rug. No, our sin had to be dealt with. And it was. It was. For as we look forward from this night of terror for our Savior, we begin to hear some good news for just a couple hours from now. We hear Christ hanging on the cross, beaten, bloodied, mocked, and scourged, cry, It is finished. You see, the good news is he drank it all. He drank every last drop of the cup of God's full and furious wrath against our sin. This is what it meant to him. His hour had come. As Mark continues and concludes this narrative scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, we discover not only that the shepherd is stricken and the son exceedingly sorrowful, But a third shocking reality here and that the sovereign is seized. Mark notes that immediately as Christ is saying that his betrayer is at hand, Judas appears with a crowd following him. It's in this moment that we're tempted once again to take our gaze off the main character in the scene, isn't it? We begin to look in a certain disgust at Judas. This man who has followed Christ for so many years, seemingly by faith, was it surprising that it was Judas who betrayed Jesus with this kiss? Oh, it may have been, but Mark doesn't allude to that here. For you see, Mark, Mark's not focused on Judas, is he? Jesus is the focus. The one who was there at the beginning when everything surrounding them in this moment was created. When it came into existence, the creator of these trees, the plants, the stones, the wood that was used to fashion those clubs in the hands of the crowd, the sovereign over all, who brought life 
to the ones now standing there in the garden threatening his. I mean, look through the crowd and notice what happens next. Mark uses this word not only once, but three times to make sure we see it, to make sure we grasp what it happens in this moment. They laid hands on him and seized him. Verse 44, verse 46, and verse 49. Seized. How could this be? I mean, how could the one who holds all things together, now he himself become the one held forcibly? The creator captured? How? Why? The creator seized? Again, we are startled by what's happening before our very eyes. The sovereign is seized, but remember, it's not against his will. It's rather by his will. For in the midst of all the bustle of the crowd, the shouting, the swords clanking, and even the skirmish between one of Christ's disciples who wants to take things into his own hands and the servant of the high priest, Jesus' words resound loud and clear. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Oh, this is but a reiteration of the words he has just prayed a few minutes earlier. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, friends, while Adam and Eve in that garden back in Genesis 3 sought their own will, Jesus here in this garden surrendered his. For the joy that was set before him, taking, making himself nothing but taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death, enduring death on the cross and despising the shame. You see, this is what it meant to him to bear our sin. Stricken in your place. Sorrowful because of your rebellion. Seized so that you may be free. Oh, friends, our sin bears a staggering weight upon our Savior. Do you feel the weight of your sin as you look at our Savior here in these words? It was our sin that deserved that cup that he was staring into. The modern hymn writer Chris Anderson and Greg Habegger have written a a hymn entitled His Robes for Mine, and I, I believe in conclusion this morning it beautifully and profoundly conveys the wonder we should rightly feel when we look at our Savior in this moment to consider what it meant for him. They write, His robes for mine. Oh, wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath 
God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. His robes for mine. God's justice is appeased. Jesus is crushed. And thus the Father's pleased. Christ drank God's wrath on sin and then cried, "'Tis done. Sin's wage is paid. Propitiation won. So I cling to Christ and I marvel at the cost. Jesus forsaken, God estranged from God. Bought by such love my life. Oh, it's not my own. My praise, my all shall be for Christ alone. Friends, this, this is what it meant to him to bear our sin. So Father, would you help us to feel the weight in this moment? Whether we are, by your sovereign grace, recipients of that gift of faith that you grant, wherewith our our eyes have been opened to see and behold your love in the gospel, and we have turned in faith and repentance, I pray that we would feel the weight of what it meant to him. Or whether someone is here this moment, this morning, and in this moment, is for the first time feeling the weight of their sin. They are seeing the wrath that you have against their sin, and they are feeling crushed. They are feeling heavy because of their sin. God, would you gift them that same faith you've gifted me, that you would awaken their dead hearts, and that they would, in this moment, bow their knee to you in faith that they would repent of their sin and that you would, again, by this miracle of salvation, welcome this child back into your loving arms. Father, whoever it is in this moment and in this auditorium, may we all feel the weight of our sins 